Now, substitution, identification, these are terms would have to do with who God is and what he's forming us into, but not just in an outward sense, but inwardly as well. Hello and welcome to the podcast that they might know. In this episode, we'll be examining Romans chapter 4, where we see the patriarch Abraham and how he pictures for us salvation. And he touches on, the Apostle Paul touches on certain topics like justification and identification with Christ and the substitutionary work of Jesus. If you are a man and you have questions about discipleship, if you want to grow in your faith and you have that need to talk to someone, you can go to my website, uh, Godly Increase, and you can place your um, email address there, and I'll be happy to contact you with any questions you might have. And now for this episode on Romans chapter 4. Dear Heavenly Father, I give this time to you, a time to reflect on your word, a time to share your word, a time for all my listeners to consider the things that are written in the only book that matters that was ever written. The book whose writer and author is God. You're the author, Lord. No one is more serious nor, nor touching truth as you do. You're the source of truth as you are the source of life. I pray, Lord, that we would be serious about the things that come from you because they matter. They're the only things that matter. Men can fool us. We can deceive ourselves. But there is a God who is righteous above everything that we could ever imagine. About any good that we could ever conceive of, you are eternally good. You are the source of good. And so we pray that you would open our hearts Consider these things with fear and with trembling, knowing that you are a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness beyond all ability to conceive. You made us to be conceptual, but Lord, comprehending you is beyond our ability. You know that. Make us to know that. And therefore, to come to you with a solemnness that will, that will last in the days to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon is Abraham, Heir of the World. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 4, if you have your Bible. If you're listening in the car, obviously you won't be able to read. But otherwise, if you want to follow along, I'm going to start in chapters 4 and verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, 
not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him who is who, whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against in in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And so uh, the main point of this passage isn't exactly Abraham, heir of the world, but all the meaning, the principles, the teachings of the gospel behind that concept. I'm just coming from that perspective because uh, there's is a reason that will come out in the course of this message. But the first question I want to answer is, how is Abraham the father of those who believe and the heir of the world? Now, there's many ways that we can look at this, many ways that we can look through this to see what this answer is. But I, I want to focus on verse 11. <clears throat> Well, in, even in 10, he says, Now, how then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So the, what, we, what we need to do is look at Genesis, just think through Genesis with me for a minute. In Genesis 15, God gives Abraham this promise of being an heir, of, of, of having people come from him, that will be multitudes of people, but primarily they will be, see, not primarily, they will be God's people. And in this, he's getting the, the people who will live on earth and who will reign with Christ for eternity. And this, this, is a, this is no little problem. This is no little matter. This is huge. It's huge. In uh, he begets a son uh, in Genesis 16, which was not the son of the promise, but one who actually came out of his own unbelief. In 17, he's circumcised. So that's where this whole idea of circumcised before circumcised, and you know, wild. No, you see, he gets the promises. He becomes righteous. He is has righteousness credited on his account. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I've gone through that previous lessons. And him as a sinner, as a sinner, he's, he's credited as righteous in God's eyes. Because in verse 17, then, he becomes circumcised. He then becomes numbered with those people who uh, would be under the law, he being the first Jew. And Jews were given the law on Mount Sinai, different than Gentile people who didn't have the law of God. And, and so we see Abraham as prior to all of this, prior to circumcision, which represents religious ordinances, uh, which uh, it represents a sign and a seal of things that are actually real to God and what God produced in bringing forth the Son, Jesus Christ, and bringing forth the gospel, carrying out the promises of the gospel, all of that. These are pictures in the Old Testament and in actual lives and history in people, namely this person, Abraham. 
And so he fathers and is victorious in Genesis. Uh, he falters, I should say, in, 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 in chapters 18 through 20. He's growing strong in faith, but remember, God is, is using sinful people. So there's this matter of he goes into Egypt and he becomes afraid, and all of that goes down if you want to read that for yourself and you see what happens with his wife. But then in verse 22, he's asked to offer a sacrifice of his son, the promised son, and he, and he carries it through. Now, in these ways, he's picturing someone to come, but he's actually fulfilling this in his own heart and in his own life. So then in verse 11 it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Now it's not credited through Abraham. He's the the picture. He's a picture of one who is accredited right has righteousness put on his account prior to being circumcised and post circumcised he's continually standing with god in faith god's grace is being placed upon him and he is in this way foreshadowing and a picture for all those who would believe so then in verse 12 he says Paul does, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So therefore, father Abraham is uncircumcised. And so if it's a Jew and he's been circumcised, you know, after eight days, they circumcise him. And he's now being brought up under the law because he's Jewish. Okay, he's his father, but... It says, who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. See, it's not enough, <clears throat> excuse me, to be born a, a Jewish person, or an Israelite. It's not enough to be born a Christian, for that matter, today. I mean, birth doesn't mean rebirth. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And that's the picture here in Romans chapter 4. Because then in verse 13, it goes on, it says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So there is a very, very, very important issue here. And that is that all of these statements about Abraham, whether it's heir of the world or the father of nations, all of these statements do not place him in some special place as if he was a special human being as if he had no sin or he was righteous in themselves that's the last thing it's saying it's saying just the opposite but rather that as a forerunner so to speak one who came before he walked through the steps of faith that god places on all those who believe those who come into the kingdom who are adopted as sons those who receive the promises become the temple of the holy spirit all of these matters these elements of salvation that every child of god experience these are placed as a picture in abraham so we understand who to follow we understand that we're not following abraham we understand that we're walking in his steps as he came first and first not biblically first he wasn't the first person to be saved biblically but he is the the person that God is picturing in the scripture that is clearly, in many ways, uh, uh, an object lesson of what saving faith looks like, like like none before. Not because they didn't walk the same walk, but because in in the course of their life, God writing it, God revealing it, and that's the that's the key here. It's revelatory. It's a revelation of God through this particular man, Abraham, to show all who would believe afterward what that faith will look like. Now, there are many other persons, people, but, but Abraham is used in a special way, particularly in the offering of his son. Now, Abraham was the first, therefore, the father of all Israel, 
which represents a people chosen by God. As a nation, it is the people of God. But the true Jew is the person who has the faith of the first Israelite, Father Abraham. Abraham disproves that that religious works save a person. Get this. He disproves that religious works save a person. Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. What's that mean? A circumcision for the Jewish people prior to you know, Christianity and baptism. This was a sign to the world. Who are you, a Jew? When Joseph appeared before his brothers, he said, here, come, come close. They wanted to know if it was really him. I mean, they just, they couldn't, he blew their minds when he's in Egypt. And he's like second in command. And he dresses and looks like an Egyptian. And this is our brother? You know, what is this? And he tells him, come, come close. You know, and, and he shows him he was circumcised. I mean, that's no one was circumcised except Jews. And so here he is. Yeah, I'm the brother. And here's, that's the, the picture is circumcision was made known that this ordinance that was, took place eight days after a child was born, that this person was part of the Jewish people. It was an ordinance. Baptism doesn't save. Circumcision doesn't save. Going through all of these motions that they have in the Holy Roman Catholic Church and the beads and the, the prayers and the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys and the saints and, and an endless array, not just in Roman Catholicism, but in all religions, that all of these ordinances are going to say, if you just do these things, well, that doesn't change a person's heart. It doesn't, it doesn't deliver you from being a sinner and in the hands of God. It's, it's something that is far more deadly and deep than keeping some ordinance to be delivered from sin. Past week or two, um, I have listened to Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was written by, and it was preached by Jonathan Edwards, Enfield, Connecticut, 1741, and it had an impact on the colonies back then like was profound it was it was it was god given god anointed and it 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 depicted what would go on in the colonies for the next 30 years of godly men preaching the righteousness of god and not just the love of god that we're so familiar with for the past 100 years since uh, this this emphasis on god's love leaving behind all idea of that God is righteous and he punishes sin. No, these were days of revival, real revival, not fake revival, not tent meetings and emotional outbursts. This was real men getting knocked down and knocked out with the reality of their sinfulness because that's what real revival is. If you ever listen to some Sunday morning preacher or you listen to somebody and they're just going so emotional and they never really disclosing, proclaiming, uh, defining, explaining the depths of what sin is, then that's not someone who's preaching the full gospel and the part of the gospel that is actually necessary because the love of God means nothing apart from the cross. It's depicted most clearly at the cross. And at the cross, Christ was hanging there in order to pay for the price of man's rebellion and pride. All the sins that flow from rebellion and pride. This is the, where the devil fell. Being filled with knowledge of his own greatness. The greatest of all the angels. I mean, I mean I'm it. I mean, God poured everything into me, and now I am God. I mean, it's that kind of pride that takes matters in our own hands and does what we will, no matter what God says. We go all the way to saying that we don't, we don't acknowledge God. We make up gods in our, in our own image. All of this pride that, that, that just feeds rebellion 
that says, I don't care what God says. I don't care that God is. I don't care the warning he makes throughout the scriptures. I don't care about any of this. What I care about is what I want. Now we can talk about sin and in many, many ways that it works itself out, but this is the core of what sin is. And if that's alive in a person's heart, if it hasn't been dealt with at the cross, and if God hasn't poured out his grace on a person so that they are able to exercise faith by being born again, and the exercise of faith is the working out of what is done at the cross. And so the cross, a person is put to death. He sees sin for what it is. He acknowledges he's worthless. And worse than that, he's wretched before God and deserving eternal punishment. At that point, a person is born again. He then begins to work out the faith. He's not working out the faith to save himself any longer. He's working out his faith out of appreciation for what Christ did when he died on the cross. Those are two completely ways of looking at the gospel. One is the gospel, one is a false gospel. So in uh, verse 11b of chapter 4 of Romans, it says, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Now, I know people twist things all the time. I can just hear voices in my ear of people I've talked to over decades and who, who twist these things to mean something other than what they say. This is what it says. He believed the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. He believed prior to being circumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So if you're a Jew and you're circumcised, if you're not a Jew and you're not circumcised, in times past, that uncircumcision didn't matter because you had the faith of your father Abraham. Verse 12, the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. It is most important to understand exactly what it is that God is saying through Israel. Verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be the heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Don't, don't miss that. Stop. Think. The promise, you're going to be the father of many nations. That's like saying, I'm saving you. And in that salvation, I'm picturing salvation through you. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world, not just the Jew, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Not the keeping of the law, which only a born-again person from his heart, recognizing the sin that was put to death on the cross and the resurrected life that's made available through the resurrected Christ, that is through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If those who are of the law are heirs, for the law brings about wrath. That's the purpose of the law. And he's going to go on to, to show this more in, in chapters uh, 6 and 7. What does the law do? The law brings about the revelation of God's will, which we cannot keep. And so, therefore, it shows how angry God gets with rebellious sinners. And that's all through the scriptures as well. Just read the prophets. Read Jeremiah. You, you will twist, twist your head around to understand when you start to understand just how God feels about sin. I mean, he, he squashes sin like we might squash a bug. I mean, he, he hates it to the point that it's going to splatter blood all over his robes. I mean, it's, it's horrible. We, we live in it so much, so we don't like to look at it. We don't like to accept it. As a matter of fact, we would prefer to hurt people to talk about it. But the truth is the truth. You want to accept the truth or you want to live in a lie now, and then one day when it's revealed to everyone, when all the dead are raised, whether they've gone to be with 
Christ or they've spent this time in hell, all will be raised and stand before God in judgment, and then everything will be revealed. In that day and in that hour, men will understand fully just exactly how God feels about sin and about how he feels about his son and all those who he chose to redeem through his son. No man can keep the law. Anyone who becomes acquainted with the law of God becomes more fully acquainted with the evil of his own heart. His rebellion becomes the source of a hard heart. Furthermore, the work of God is guaranteed. The Lord, our righteousness, is the only source of righteousness. Jehovah Tzitkanu is a name of God, and it means the Lord, that is the I am that I am, our righteousness. Righteousness comes from God. Jeremiah 23, 6, in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live securely, and this is his name by which he will be called Jehovah Tzitkanu if you prefer Yahweh, Sitkanu, the Lord, our righteousness, our righteousness. We are made right. Why? Because Christ is righteousness. And here's one of those doctrines which we need to spend some time thinking about, and that is identification. Those who are identified with Christ in his death are resurrected in his life. There's a substitute that was made on the cross. Christ became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. That, that, that identification is on the books. It's an accounting term. And so there's a, a transaction that takes place. But I have to tell you, and you may be a long-term pastor and you may be taught certain things uh, in, in school or, or in church, in Sunday school, wherever that might be. And w- you may uh, be of a, of a mind that that identification, that substitution is just on the books. That is not the case. That's not true. That uh, substitution becomes an actuality as well. And what I mean by that is the, the identification is such that the very life of Christ is imparted through the work of the Holy Spirit. This transformation that takes place, which is the purpose of it all, Romans 8, when we get there, and all things work together for the good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. What's the purpose? That we might be conformed to the image of Christ. If you think of us as like a pipe through which the, the, the water of life of God flows through us, the life of God that flows through us is transforming. And what it does is it's transforming us into the image of Christ. How else could that be done? I mean, it's not like we copy something and it's coming from us. And we saw a painting and now we sit down and we paint. And no, it's not like that at all, really. Now, substitution, identification, these are terms would have to do with who God is and what he's forming us into but not just in an outward sense, but inwardly as well. We're becoming one. Not that we become God, but that we, we have his life imparted in such a way. We think like him. We, we, we act like him. We think all of it becomes part of who we are in, in an intimacy, in a closeness that is really kind of hard to explain, but it's pictured in marriage. I mean, the two shall be one. I mean, they shall be joined together. That, that's kind of glued together. They, it, they lose each other in one another. That's, that's the picture of marriage. And it's pictured there for this very reason that the ultimate plan is for people to become like God through the, his working within them. And so what's being said here has to do with the righteousness of God being placed within the heart of men, that we are not just being forgiven sin, but we are becoming so close, so intimate, is that we begin to behave like him, think like him, motivations or attitudes, all of it, all of it. Now this is different than a man making his own way to heaven through his own righteousness. 
I mean, until a person comes to an end of himself and realizes that apart from God and apart from Christ, not just intellectually, no, 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 all the way to the depths of the heart until that takes place, the person is going to hell and is going to suffer an eternity of having rejected Christ and God and not acknowledging even his existence, that there's a separation, an alienation, there's enemies here. God hating the pride and the rebellion of a sinful man on the one hand and man hating to be dominated out of pride and rebellion on his end. That's what we have, those two factions. But that's brought together in the, in the gospel by those who believe. By those who believe. We work out our own salvation. It's, uh, that's, that's a scripture. Uh, we do that out of appreciation. We do that out of love for God, for what he did for us when he saved us. That's saving faith. The only thing a man can guarantee by his imagined goodness is the damnation of his soul to hell for all eternity. That's all that a man can guarantee. That's all he can accomplish. Verse 16 says, For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all his all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. <clears throat> Get this, understand this. This is a guarantee. Where's the guarantee come from? Well, if you think that you can guarantee your own salvation, if you think you can work out your own salvation, if you think as a sinner before a holy God, you can do anything that is pleasing to him, even if you so so-called believe in your head the gospel facts are true. Oh yeah, Jesus went to the cross, he died for me, blah, 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 uh, and now I'm going to work out my salvation as if I'm going to work my way to heaven. If you think that's what the gospel is saying, you better read the Bible again. You better read it a whole lot more closely because that's not what it's saying. Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. When the law sinks into a man's head, when it starts to go down into his heart, he starts to grasp the whole concept that he is wretched before God and worthy of eternal damnation. Until that point comes in, there is no receiving the gospel. There is no, there is no applying faith to what God says because, see, it's being rejected. If you think you can work out your salvation, you're rejecting the gospel. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Grace is giving you something you don't deserve. It's placing, it's placing salvation upon Abraham while uncircumcised prior to the law that was given to Moses, prior to all of that, prior to the ordinances, prior to the sacrifices of the Lamb, prior to all of that. Why? To make this point. We're going to use Abraham, God says. Why? Because he was prior to all of that. But he was saved. And he's the father of all who were saved. Wow. I mean, do you get it? Do you get it? So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Now there is something here that I want to spend before I close up this lesson, which I find to be very, very important indeed. And what, what it is that I'm about to share is going to lead into chapter 5. It's going to lead into chapter 5, and that's going to be really running the course of chapter 5. And I want us to start to get it here, because this is where Paul first starts to talk about. And that is the oneness of the human race. We are a race. You know, before you get to race, people misuse and don't even understand the race. There are two races biblically. This isn't me. There's two races in the Bible. One is the race of Adam, and the other is the race of Christ. Only those two. There are different families within the race. But there is only the one race. The race of Adam. All men are descendants from Adam. If we're going to believe what the Bible says, that God created the world in six days, and that on each day it had his own thing that God did, 
And then at the end of the six days, on the sixth day, he creates man. He creates man in his image, and he creates Adam, and then from Adam he takes Eve, and from an Adam and Eve came the whole entire race. That may seem incredible to some people. Those same people might believe that everything came from nothing. That doesn't seem incredible, right, that something should come from nothing, even though that goes against all reason. But that being the case, the Bible teaches something which is very reasonable and that there was an eternal being and that eternal being decided to create. And he's omnipotent. I can't, still can't explain how something comes from nothing, but we understand at least someone was in control of it. And that's where faith begins. It begins in a God you don't understand, you can't comprehend. You can understand that God is three in one, he's three persons in one God, but you can't comprehend it. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. So who would want a God that you can make sense of? That would mean that we were making him. And that's what idolatry is all about. The, the first and worst commandment. No, 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 idols before God. And God is incomprehensible. But it makes sense. It makes sense that there was a God before creation. Now here, this should make sense too. The human race is one. Why should that make sense? Well, just look at everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. Everybody's got two eyes and two ears and a nose and a mouth. Look the same, maybe slightly different. I mean, a father is different from a son in some ways. I mean, everybody's different. Certain characteristics are much closer, and genetics explains all of that, even if you want to be scientific about it. But the fact is, a human being is a human being. We don't look like turtles. We don't look like horses. It's a, a whole different... Some people use the word species. The, the Bible uses the word kind. A kind of living thing. And though there are different families within that one human race, it's all one human race. Now, when Christ comes along and a person is born again, where you can't see it except through fruit, people become constitutionally different. They're changed. They're changed into a person who has the characteristics of God. Love is, is different. Motives are different. Attitudes not to perfection, so you look at any Christian, you're going to go, oh, he's just a sinner. Well, yeah, there is, he is a sinner. But if you could see a, a, a righteous person, a saved person, a Christian or a true Jew person, then you would see someone with a different heart. You would see someone who actually was able, made able to love God in the right way. Seeing Christ on the cross, seeing what God did. That's a, a different race. In, in Romans chapter 4, it says, as it is written, verse 17, a father of many nations have I made you. Now, Abraham is not just made the father of the Jew, and this is all clear through Romans 4. Just spend time there. But the uncircumcised, the circumcised, he's the father of. He's father of Jew and Gentile. He's father of all those who have the same type of faith that he has that takes God's word exactly for what it says and doesn't twist it and turn it into something else, doesn't pervert the gospel, for which there is, in Galatians chapter 1, a horrible warning. So if anyone is listening to this, and if you've been twisted in your mind because of some type of religious belief system that does not believe the true gospel, please consider your ways. Because the warning there is that you would be incapable of being redeemed. I'm telling you that is not something that you want to be part of who you are or part of the way God looks at you. You do not want to be a false prophet. You want to be someone who acknowledges the word for what it says, not what you want it to say. So there is this new people. There is this new people for of which God says, and I quote, Verse 17 again, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. There's a God who creates something that doesn't exist and now it exists. In this case, what doesn't exist in human beings is righteousness, internal righteousness, because it was lost at the fall. 
Does that mean that people are totally evil? No. In the condition in which we find ourselves presently, prior to judgment, we are, in part, we have a conscience. We have a side that tells us good from evil. And for a multitude of reasons, men towards to, to do what's good, to act good, to act in the image of God. That being the case, people are separated from God, alienated God from God, wretched and wicked sinners. Now, how you hold those two together will, will change how you look at men. But if you would look at it correctly, you would look at men as the way God sees it. He would see it as one who he, God, gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. What does not exist is a righteous man on earth. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none good. No, not one. We read that in, in Romans chapter 3. So what's that mean? So that means where it counts before Almighty God, no matter how partially good we might be, that we have some goodness attached to us, that we're clinging to the remnant of what we were before the fall, no matter how that exists before God at the judgment, that's not going to matter. Because men in their fallen condition are worthy of hell. And it's written all through the scriptures. And all through the New Testament, where Jesus talks about hell, that that's the place that men will go. Now, having said that, it's very important to understand, very important to understand, that God is doing something whereby he creates something new. He brings to life the dead. And he calls into existence something that hasn't existed before. This makes Abraham the father of a people that did not exist. This makes father a universal father, Abraham a universal father, in the sense, again, as a picture of those who are living by faith. So as there's the race in Adam, there's the race in Christ, and Paul is starting to bring us towards this point, which he's going to magnify, and he's going to start to really examine in, in chapter 5, which we'll be talking about in a future lesson. But this is a very important concept. The concept is not only about unity, it's about identity. There's unity, there's union in the human race. It might be in wickedness, it might be in deception and lies and deceit and lust and anger and malice and murder, and all of those things that are associated with sin, whether it's just in the mind and in the heart, or it's actually lived out in our life experience, all of that before God is unacceptable, and it demands justice. Just like standing before a judge in a court of law demands justice for the man who murdered another man. We understand that that is a law of God, at least we did at one point in our country, and that that demand needs to be satisfied by the taking of that life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. It's called justice. And it's just pointing to what God will happen after the final judgment when God will bring all men to justice. That being said, all men are in that category. There's a union, a unity. Now, we can look at others and we say, I'm better than them, but you know what? They're a human being. We're a human being. They're part of the human race. We're part of the human race. We're one, whether you want to believe it or not. Whether you want to accept the fact that we're the same, even though slightly different in many ways, that slight difference does not negate the fact that we are a human being and part of the human race. Now, those who have the faith of Abraham will enter into a new race. And that race is created by Christ. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He was perfect God, and now he's made in a human form. He actually becomes a human being. As high priest, the whole purpose behind priesthood is to be able to feel, understand what another person feels. It's about empathy. It's about understanding. It's about intercession. It's about a go come, one who is going between. So he stands before God, Christ, who is all, all, all God, 
And he understands God. He understands how he hates sin. He understands how he loves people to the point of willing to save some by grace, even though they demand justice. He demands justice for their sin. That being the case, he loves men and he was willing to sacrifice his son. He who spared not his own son. Now that sonship, that love that God offered through the son, Christ also understands. Because he's fully man now, he understands man as from man's perspective, the need there is. He understands temptation as a man. He understands what it means to be hungry, to be thirsty, to see and to just be in one place at one time and not to be everywhere present. This is the... The love of God is incomprehensible, just like everything else about God is incomprehensible. And in this condition, in this state of, of the love of God uh, as a man, Christ is our interceder. And in that place, he is able to create on the cross what he accomplished in our salvation. He's God, so he's perfectly holy. He is a man so he could take the place of men. It's a simple concept, but it's also as deep and as real as it it could possibly be. And so we offer, I offer today this gospel message to all those who are yet in their sins. The, The offer here, which is an offer by God, is to become part of something new. It's to become part of a different race, to leave the race of Adam as a sinful man, lost, without hope in the world, and to join a, a new race where all people will be identified not in Adam, but in, in Jesus Christ. Are you identified with Jesus Christ is the question. Do you identify yourself with him because you believe in him and he's, he's becoming everything to you? That all your trust is not in your ability to do anything, certainly not the works of the law. Oh, you can keep works, you can do things for, to some extent. But can you do them to the extent that they satisfy God? Well, not if you take God at his word and you read the word carefully, you will see that, that no man can do that. And we've been going through that pretty extensively in chapter 4. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He understood something. Faith is in the impossible. It's in the impossible. What's the impossible? The impossible is a sinful man getting to heaven. If you want to have the faith of Abraham, you have to believe that it's impossible for you to get to heaven apart from Christ. And I'm talking about full on only Christ. That at, the, at some point in your life, you have to put the, your faith in him as if he's the only thing that exists. He's the only one that matters, not you. And it will never be your works. God will never pin a medal on you for having earned your way to heaven. That's the difference between grace and law. By the law, you can wear a medal. By grace, you can wear no medal. Spend some time in Romans 4, and that's what it says. Now, before sitting down to preach this message and share the truth of Romans 4, um, my wife came in and she said, Becky passed away. Becky? I wasn't thinking. I mean, I just woke up. Becky and a very close friend I've known since he was 16 years old. He was part of a church that I was pastoring at the time. And he went away for some time and he, he did some bad things. And at the end of that time, He became a Christian. He had known of Christ before. I heard him pray some wonderful prayers when he was in the 16 range. And then he went away and he did some terrible things. And then he came to a true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for some years now, he's been bearing great fruit in that regard. And in the process of that, he was witnessing, sharing Christ with his sister. Now, I don't know the condition of a sister's heart. He doesn't know. No one knows the condition of another one's heart. And she was in a position where people get where bad things happen and they can lose their life. And she lost her life in a bad way. 
And I don't share these things for any emotional reaction, except that it's a true life story that brought me to tears earlier. And I don't want it to bring me to tears right now. But, you know, life is, is sad. And the saddest part of this is that James and I and his family, you know, no one knows the condition of her heart and won't know until Judgment Day or we go to be with him now. And that, that is, you know, is she in heaven or, or not? No one knows. She wasn't living that kind of lifestyle, but she sat under the gospel. And it's possible to be redeemed and still be stuck in that place and until God begins to do the work of transformation. We're all a work, and we don't know where we are in that work, and no one knows where she's at, and it's it's a hard thing. It's a hard place to be in as a Christian person who really understands and accepts the concepts, the concept of eternity. One place very, very good. One place very, very bad. And so I, if you're a Christian and you're listening to this, I would ask you to bow your head and pray for Becky and her family. The family would be comforted and that, fam, that Becky would have become a Christian before losing her life in an extraordinarily bad way. And I, and, I, and I pray for the family that they would be comforted in a, in a very sorrowful time. But it brings the reality of, of heaven and hell. It brings the reality of death. We all die. We want to stuff it away and think like it's never going to happen. It's going to happen. Unless Jesus comes back first and we are raptured away from this earth, which is a doctrine of the Bible, unless that day comes first, we will, we will pass certainly into the valley of the shadow of death. And we will open our eyes in, in a gloriously great place or a place inconceivably horrible. With that being said, I pray for you that you would come to that saving knowledge. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word of truth. Bless your word of truth and make it to be wonderful in the ears of those who hear. I pray for all of those, Lord, who have been called according to your purpose to be conformed to the image of Christ. If they are yet in an unsafe state, that they would bow their heads, that their hearts would be broken, and they would open wide and welcome Jesus Christ into their life as a Savior who befriends those whom he saves, who enters into a loving relationship beyond anything we can experience in this life, and that we receive the earnest of the Spirit, just a down payment, and that in itself brings joy and peace and satisfaction and hope, a hope that saves. I pray that for all those who hear this message today. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name.